Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing, writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. As I mentioned last week, we got a new issue coming out in about a week, and it'll feature my conversation with the one and only R.L. Stein. Yes, the Goosebumps guy. But at the moment, I've got my conversation with the wonderful Deb Coletti up there, plus lots of cool articles, my almost my tri-weekly blog. That is, I do it about three times a week. I write a little essay about the creative. It's all on there. It's all on there. Authormagazine.org. Go check it out. Check it out after you listen to this. Uh, we're also funded by the fabulous Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They uh, have been supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. You can learn all about them at the pnwa.org, pnwa.org. We uh, have great classes there. We also have um, a monthly meeting. And, uh, you know, if you don't live in the Pacific Northwest and you can't make it to our you don't live up in the Seattle area. You can't make it to the monthly meetings. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You can uh, check it out online. We do it live online and also in archives. So you can listen to it whenever you want. See, that's how it works. So if you want to join us, very reasonable. It's only 65 bucks a year. Can you believe that? It's nothing. You can come check it out at pnwa.org. Ah, so what's going on with me? You wonder, you ask. Not a lot, but thanks for asking. What's going on is that, uh, well, on October 7th, I will be at Right on the Sound, a lovely little writer's conference up here in, uh, in uh, ooh, what is it, uh, Washington, uh, Edmonds, that's where it is, that's up in Edmonds, just outside Seattle. I'll be teaching Fearless Marketing on uh uh, well, it's going to be October 7th, Sunday, October 7th. I know a lot of people have signed up, so if you're one of them, hey, I can't wait to see you, Fearless Marketing. And then later on in October, I'll be down on the 25th, 26th, 27th, that, the end of the week of the 25th there, in Pasadena for the Writer's Digest Yearly Novel Writers Conference. And I'm going to be teaching Listening to the Muse and uh, how to give a killer keynote. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So... Uh, it's a great little conference, not like the big one in New York, but it's a smaller one, but it's a great conference. I know uh, some people who have been on this show are going to be down there giving a keynote. Robert Cray, yeah, he's going to be there. So if you're there, come say hey and uh, talk to me about fearless writing. All right, fear. Speaking of fear, oh, we got a scary guest. No, she's not scary. She's very nice, but she is also the second mortician I've interviewed. Can you believe that? I never knew I'd interview one, and now she's my second. But she is. She's Elizabeth Fournier. She is known, Elizabeth is, as the Green Reaper. And she's the owner and operator of Cornerstone Funeral Services outside of Portland, Oregon, in a tiny town called, and I kid you not, Boring. Yes, she lives in Boring, Oregon. And she serves uh, on the advisory board for the Green Burial Council, and lives on a farm with her husband, daughter, and many rescued goats. But, of course, she's also an author. She's the author of The Green Burial Guide, Everything You Need to Plan an Affordable, Environmentally Friendly Burial. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. 
Yeah, and I'm sitting in my repurposed goat barn funeral parlor here in the country <laughs> in boring Oregon. Wait a but minute. But it's not boring You're, here. I, you know, there are so many jokes about being a mortician in a town called Boring. Uh, I love About them. what would drive people to, to your services. <laughs> that may be just a sheer lack of interest in living. But no, I won't make those jokes. Uh, <laughs> so tell me again, what are you sitting in? A repurposed of what? What, repurposed what, what? goat barn. And that's your that's where you that's that's your funeral home. It's a repurposed yes, goat barn. Yes, it is. We take it very Man, seriously here, recycled. but yes, it is. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So listen. Uh, <laughs> I have to tell you now. Don't take this the wrong way, please. I can't believe this book exists, and I'll tell you why. Because the subject matter is not one people want to read about. Uh, is my impression. Because we just want to avoid it, avoid it, avoid it, avoid it. But you're saying, no, read about it. Death is what I mean. Uh, but I, I, obviously, some people are interested in it. Uh, so talk to me about that. Who is it that wants to talk to you about this subject besides people who are about to die? And maybe they're not well, even the a, ones. Yeah, the, actually, it's the people who are living, because they're the ones who actually are reading. <laughs> right. But That's they, your audience. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. So I'd say pretty much everybody who possibly has the ears to listen to the show, too. Um, right. You know, there's a whole host of people. It's pretty amazing. A lot of people decide that they are going to check out off the planet at some point, even regarding how much our medicine has improved and our right. health care and all that. It's just the reality is 100% yeah. of us are going to die. It's going to happen. Yeah. You can eat your vegetables and exercise daily and <laughs> the time will come. So people think about that occasionally and think, well, you know, I have these plans of what I want to do, but how do I put that in motion? And now we're part of a do-it-yourself culture. We're also part of a culture that really cares about the environment, really wants to save some money. And so all of that rolled into one makes lots of hungry people who say, hey, where can I find a book where I can learn how to take some of these matters into my own hands and I can learn where some tips and tricks are as well as yeah. just some information in a nice package that isn't scary, like you say. Not scary, yeah. And are a lot of the people, how many of them are doing it for loved ones that are on their way out? In other words, it's the children whose parents are, or maybe you know, brother or sister or something. How many of them are doing it because they're like, you know, grandma's going, but we know she would want, you know, it to be done environment is it how much is it for themselves or how much is it for other people or do they seek your advice I meet, or counsel you know I, just the people that i meet <clears throat> when i'm out in public or at funerals or out at book signings people come up to me all across the board i have yeah. the people who are have a terminal illness and want right. to figure out how to make some plans i have the people who have the a spouse or the elderly parent or the sibling who is not well. I also have the curious people. I have the whole goth crowd. I have the environmentalists, uh, people who want low-carbon footprints, um, the people who just love the idea of recycling and volunteering in the earth, you name it. Right. Wow. So everybody, okay, so all across the board. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so you, though, you have an interesting relationship to death in that early in your life you saw a lot of it like you know it's and i should say that's interesting because i have had very little of it in my i mean my grandparents are all dead i'm 53 so it's no great surprise there but really except for an uncle and 
some cats. <laughs> my my particular life has been relatively death free, but yours was. It won't be forever. I know, but at the moment, that's where it is. But not not you. You early on, it was happening kind of all. Your mom passed very early, I think you said, and, or you wrote, and your grandma too, maybe. Am yeah, and must right? I say to you, congratulations on being almost death-free. I had a man come in recently who was 65 years old and said he'd never been to a funeral, and not by choice, but just nobody in his life really had passed away that ever had a funeral. <laughs> yeah. And he was making plans for his mom and said, tell me what to do. I've never, I know nothing about yeah. this, never been in a funeral home. And I thought, well, you know, congratulations. That's, you escaped. That's pretty neat. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. People like myself are on the opposite foot of that. When I was a young kid, I had mom die. And then the grandparents who lived inside the family home, they died. And all this yeah. took place within about three years. So in a really wow. short period of time, I was going to lots of funerals and I was going to lots of rosaries and lots of cemetery burials and um, taking keen interest in this and also trying to figure out my place in the world as well. You know, so I, one of the things I do is I teach uh, memoir. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of interviews, and I like to interview memoirists. I also teach memoir. And a big subject of memoir is death, uh, particularly um, death of a parent, particularly when you're young. For a lot of people, there's a famous book, uh, called Wild by Cheryl Strait, an Oregonian, and her mother's <laughs> death precipitated her decline into drug use and various other things. It was the death of her mom that really freaked her out. And I mention that because it doesn't sound like, unless you're just sort of skating over it, the death of your mom flattened you. Or maybe it did, but you've just bounced back. But you bounced back so quickly that it didn't matter. How did it, how, how were you with it? Because 10's pretty young. Most For many 10-year-olds, that's going to spin their world upside down. Yeah, yeah, thanks for taking note. I appreciate that. Um, when I was eight, I had the mom. The grandparents were, you know, at six and at nine. So by the time I was 10, all three, po- three people very viable in my life were no longer alive. And all the yeah. fourniers around were known to be in caskets versus be out walking on the earth. So, yes, going yeah. to a little small Catholic school, I stood out quite a bit. I think that how I dealt with this was just learning how to incorporate this into my play structure. I would play with my brother's cars in the yard, and I'd line them up and play funeral, and I'd dig a grave in the sand. And then I would have my dolls, my Barbies would wear black a lot because they were going to a funeral. And even though I looked like a functional, happy kid, I was trying to work all this out for myself. I still had friends. I was still in brownies. I still did your typical type of stuff, dancing in the garage to Captain and Tennille, all the typical 70s (laughs) kid sort of thing. But nonetheless, I was, this was what's going on in my private life. And, um, you know, when you're a small kid, really, maybe we wouldn't be writing all of these memoirs about our parents dying if we actually had therapy. I think going to have right. some counseling and figuring out some tools makes you kind of process this stuff at an earlier age, which would have been helpful for me, too. Yeah, I mean, because it really brings up what loss is and what it is. I mean, because death makes us look at the concept of loss and what it is. Do you what it is to lose something? Are you losing something? Um, one of my favorite teachers, I love this woman. She's very good. And she was, she had lost her husband and she realized she was grieving because she was looking for him where he wasn't, you know, specifically in the bed next to her, but she felt she could reach him other ways that she could connect to what 
her relationship to him was emotionally. Does that make sense? Yeah, I really like that. That's profound. Yeah. Well, you must deal with that, though, because, I mean, your life is dealing with people who are about to lose someone or have just lost someone. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be what you do pretty much every day. It is what I do pretty much every day. Um, but when I have someone in my life who dies, I find that even though I deal with this day in and day out, my skill set to process it is really still somewhat the same as everybody else's. A perfect really? example of that. Oh, yeah, and it's really strange. A perfect example is my father, who, of course, lived during all of these people uh-huh. in my life dying. We were very, very close. He passed away pretty recently, and I still find myself, I call our childhood home phone number. That's where he had lived. And of course he doesn't answer the phone because he's now on his beautiful cruise ship in the sky. But I let Uh the phone ring and then it goes to that point of telling me the number is disconnected. And I sort of sit there and have a moment. And then I laugh at myself for having a moment. And then I carry on. And I think, well, I know better. I've been in the death industry for almost 30 years now. And what an idiot am I to want to call my dad and talk with him. So I call his home phone. So you see, none of us get out of here alive. None of us are immune from this stuff. We just sort of carry on the best we can. So now I am just fascinated with this. I I almost dated a girl who, who, uh, when I was 13, whose father was a mortician. And I just thought, I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) She lived in a, she lived in our, in in the, in the cemetery. I thought all the reason more. (laughs) I probably should. It would have helped me. Uh, but so, but so, you, but you were drawn to this line of work like almost immediately, right? I mean, this was like pretty. I mean, in your like early twenties. Yeah, and even when I was younger, I was very comfortable with the idea. When we go to the yeah. funeral homes for the visitations, I would find myself walking around, and I would ask questions mm-hmm. of the funeral director, and I wasn't scared. My brother sat meekly in the corner. Well, I was out there checking it out and looking mm-hmm. in the drawers for free pens, and I was really quite cozy. <laughs> Interesting. So you just like your soul just said, we we have found what we got to do. You just it just like like a captain who had found a ship for the first time. You just knew. Yeah, I didn't know it at the moment, of course. I just I knew that something sort of clicked and then I went on. And, you know, I became that strange kid that everybody would come to when their dog (laughs) died or maybe grandma died and they'd sit next to me. And if I was ever minding my own business and some kid would sort of hang out next to me that I didn't know, I always thought, "Uh uh-huh, okay, hamster just died. I always knew. So I I guess I would provide comfort to people. So really, I was it was predestined for me really early on that this probably was my way of life and my brother yeah. finds that hysterical because he couldn't be all the way across the world even more remotely interested so you know it is what it is but, so when you would provide a comfort what would you do you're, you're there you are 10 year old elizabeth and some mm-hmm. mopey kid oh squibbles he's gone to the great hamster hole in the sky what would you say to, i mean how would you comfort him then because it's very intuitive you've got no training and so on but you must have felt like what would you do well i'd put a nice firm hand on the person's back so i'd make a human connection because that's what the funeral director at the funeral parlor did to me there's something about that human connection so i would do that and i wouldn't say something trite like it'll be okay or hey maybe your mom can bring you to the store and buy a new hamster (laughs) i would really just have that moment connection where i'd make eye contact and kind of let them know in so many words, I got your back. 
I got your back. And what does that you're mean? You're not alone. You you're not alone walking yeah. through this. Yeah. I, here, you're I'm not somebody who lived through it. Yeah. You're not alone in your right. grief. I'm here. I'm your invisible hand holding you, even though I don't even know that yet either. You know what? That's interesting. That, that, that there is something about wanting someone to understand your, just know what it is you're going through to make you feel less. I can see how, because I've, again, I've never, I've actually lost some friends. I lost one friend that I worked with for years, but I wasn't devastated by his loss. I have to admit. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why. I was actually quite kind of enlivened in a way during the ceremony. It was very strange, but, but I can understand. There were some people who were really weeping and I can understand just wanting to look into the eyes of someone who knows what you're going through. Isn't foreign. Is that it? You think? Yeah. Death is really, really, really isolating. And it was amazing right. to me at how a grown woman of 49 years old who just lost her father, even though I work in this industry and, you know, don't get bereavement leave, which is really highly hysterical, <laughs> isn't it? But I found that I was walking in a gray fog and I felt like nobody really could relate to me because I would hear things like he's better off where he is and at least he's not suffering and it will be okay. Right. And none of that cliche stuff helps. It's more... Right putting the hand on the back and, and just letting somebody know that you're there for them just, you know, yeah. speaks volumes. Yeah. And, and of course now the book is the green burial guide guidebook. And I, I was trying to get my head around it because I, I want the environment to be cared for. I love to, I'm so glad that in Seattle we, we are, we are heroic recyclers up here, you know, totally dedicated to it. I'm all in on that. But my mind, when I think of death, I think, well, the earth, it's not my, I'm out of here. It's now it's your problem, people. And so I, I, it's a weird connection to make that to want to be interested in environmentalism, even in at that moment. It seems like such an issue of the living, but clearly there's a lot of people thinking about it. You're not the only one or else you wouldn't have written this book. Right. There's that person who brings their cloth bags to the grocery store. And yeah, I'm one they of those decide, people. Oh, well, okay. See, you're warming up. We're, we're on the right, right. track here. Right. And then from there, you know, curbside recycling. Do you put your recyclables oh, yeah. either on oh, the curb? Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh okay. yeah. Well, oh, you know, totally. You're becoming yeah. a candidate here pretty strongly. And then things yeah. like if you're drinking your pop or your beer, do you bring that back to the store to get your 10 cents? We don't, we don't think we have that option here in, in Seattle. Oh, shame on that me. Okay, but you thing. would, right? You would. You would, you would go get that cash I don't back know. I, for that I don't can know. if you could. I don't know if I would go that far. Cash but okay, <laughs> I do all I can. Though. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean pop a top drink and walk back to Seven Eleven. Right, I mean, right. You, know, you bring a bag like of them back. Yeah. Right okay. there, you now you now you're cooking with some gas. Right, and right. we recycle that. So no, we recycle the aluminum back to whatever it needs to be. Plus, there is a monetary benefit to the consumer. So people who think like that, and people who decide, hey. I'm going to um, maybe reuse something, repurpose something. I'm not interested in eating off styrofoam, yada, yada, right. yada. Those people say, well, I walked a really green walk on this planet. I kind of like the idea of walking a green walk in death. So these are the people yeah. who tend to tell their family, do not go into the funeral home and do not buy me the grand Triton bronze deluxe model casket. <laughs> right. Get me the right. simple pine box or can you make me a shroud? And so these are the people right. who are asking for simplicity. And so what I'm finding is sometimes families call me and say, how do we go about this? How do we do this? Because 
society tells people you have to go into the funeral parlor and you're shown, you know, price list A and price list B and which will it be for you today, sir or madam? And we're learning right. that we can ask questions and do things ourselves. Yeah. And and there's actually and you you write about do it yourself funerals. In other words, you don't have to go into these sort of giant, you know, fields. Uh you can do it in your backyard, I guess, in most states. Uh and it doesn't have to be in a special area. Yeah. The people are there's, doing their own funerals now. Yeah, there's you know, there's just so many aspects of it. For one thing, in the great state of Washington, also the great state of Oregon, you can act as your own funeral home. You do not have to yeah. hire a funeral parlor or a funeral director. That's shocking for some people. And what that yeah. means, that doesn't mean you can do your own embalming in your basement, but that means <laughs> that you can provide transportation. You can fill out the paperwork and get the doctor to sign it. You can be very hands-on if that's important to you. You can make environmental choices, again, if that's important to you, and you can save the green in your wallet if that's important to you. People aren't even aware some of those options are there. You can be as extreme or as small in your shade of green. Then when it comes to burials, did you know in the state of Washington, there's about seven or eight cemeteries that allow green burials, and people aren't always aware of that. I have no idea. Yes, you have parks there, which will allow you to show up and not be embalmed, and be in a real simple, basic wood or biodegradable container like a cardboard box, allow you to be placed into the grave, which doesn't have a grave liner, and therefore you'll go back to nature, you'll save money, kumbaya, it's beautiful for everybody. Right. It's just, just go back to earth, you know, yes, just everything return to the, you just become the fertilizer, really, for, you actually You really do. The yeah. juicy goodness inside you really That's permeates right. the permaculture, puts that perm in the permaculture, and it also it, it grows trees. It does really nice things. I know. You keep, you, keep, you keep contributing to life even in your death, or at least to life. Your ding, ding, ding. Person. You got it. That's yes. Right. Now, so you wrote this book. Now, this is the first, is this the first book you've written? This is my third book. What? Yeah. Wait, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing you. Oh, okay. So, uh, so what? What? Why? Why books? You got enough to okay. do. Okay, because books got enough are to all do. about They're life people. and life. Or yeah, life and life and books and books and life. I'll tell you what. About ten years ago, I wrote a book called "All Men Are Cremated Equal: My Seventy-Seven <laughs> Blind Dates." You know why? I had seventy-seven why? blind dates in one year, and my father said, "Honey, this is some good stuff. You should write a book about it." And I said, "Dad, oh. you're always right." And I wrote a book about it. So you wrote about 77 blind dates. I slogged through all of them. I wanted to get married. I was 36 years old. I broke off a horrible engagement. Everybody said, oh, thank God you dumped him. I've got a brother, an uncle, a nephew. I've got the perfect guy for you. And I was doing yoga one day, and I said, I don't think I want yet another boyfriend. I want the one. So I made a list. Passed it around to everybody and I said, okay, if he meets these 10 points of criteria, set me up. 77 blind dates and, and spoiler alert, I was married within a year. You were? <laughs> it worked. And we're happily married See, I would have thought that would goats. never work. Oh, well, please. Yeah, yeah. I'm I a would've. woman who knows what she wants, Bill. Wow. God, you just, <laughs> you just took the bull by the horns on that. And I'm I wrote impressed. a book to help people. Yeah. Well, 
Okay, so here's my question about not. So you write nonfiction, unless unless yes. your third book is a work of fiction, which I doubt. <laughs> That's I doubt. not. I, okay, so uh, the question is this: because I write nonfiction as well, Elizabeth. I used to write fiction. I write nonfiction, and I and I always usually I not always I not usually I always know my subject before I go into it. However, I learn about stuff as I write it. I always discover more. Uh, as I write, did you find that to be the case? I don't know about this book, maybe even this book, although it seems like you were really just laying out what you know, but I don't know. I don't want to presume. Did you feel like you learned something writing this book that you didn't, maybe in a little bit of something that you didn't know already? Absolutely. Oh my yeah? goodness. Yes. Like what? So when I wrote the green, well, with writing the green barrel guidebook, I had to actually make sure I knew what I was talking about because I'm instructing people and giving advice and helping yeah. people take care of their dying loved ones, and then after they die, figure out what to do from there. So I have to right. be very factual in this. So there's, it's annotated all the way through. I yeah, have yeah, I saw that. I give yeah. credit to all the people who have written other things. Don't want to take any credit. I am not the first green burial activist out there. So there's other right. members of, that I have written. And so I learned many things, and I studied things, and, of course, just like when you're in school and you really like a subject, you sort of cross-reference and you learn and you read different articles and go to lectures. And, yeah, I ate, breathed, and drank and slept green burial for quite a while, and actually I still do. Wow. And so to some degree – so you were already doing it, but, but it wasn't the only thing you did, the green burial. This, and, the, and so the writing of it took your knowledge of it up another notch. Every time I give a public presentation or I have a book signing, I learn something uh-huh. new every single time because somebody will uh-huh. ask a question and it challenges mm-hmm. me because I can give an answer, but I think to myself, mm, I want to give a better answer about that. Uh, so let yeah. me go home and study more of the rules on how to bury yourself at sea. Or, oh, you know what? I'm not really sure if that corrugated whatever container they're talking about is 100% biodegradable. Let me check that out. So I am the first to admit I don't know everything. I know quite a bit about it, but it is thrilling and such a sumptuously rich topic. And people are so brilliant and so kind, and I just get fed new knowledge continually. You get And you get fed new knowledge in I, I, I like I, I'm with you on that. It's fascinating to me that the best people I meet when I go and give a talk are the people who ask me things I don't I can't really answer. It drives me crazy. I have to admit, I get a little bug that I can't answer it to my satisfaction at the moment. But that's what sends me thinking for the week or two afterwards. And it always improves my understanding of the subject matter. It's the people who ask the, the most surprising questions. You know, and I like to go one step further, and I like to say to them, I'm going to answer this to the best of my ability. However, I would like to research this and get more information back to you. After we're done here, may I please get your email address so I can follow up with you? And not only does the person appreciate you caring about their question and your willingness to learn the knowledge, but it's it's hand in hand because I feel like I learned yet one more tool for my green tool belt. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? You just, you just, the learning never stops, does it? No. Then you're dead. Better not. Until you're dead. <laughs> then I'll need That's my right. book, I guess, right? <laughs> I told my son, he's, he was talking about, re- about retirement. And I was like, Max, writers don't retire. They just die. That's, there is no, there is no retirement. I have zero interest in retirement. I couldn't. That's fine. I couldn't have a more 
for an idea. All right. Well, Elizabeth, this was a very interesting conversation. I have to say, interesting talking to people who are interested in what they're doing, I have to say. And you're one mm-hmm. of them. But we're not done. We're not done yet. Not exactly. I've got one more question for you. And uh, but before actually, before I ask you that, um, where, if people want to learn more about you, what can, where can they learn it? Well, if they want more information, I have a website, and it's called thegreenreaper.org. That's a fantastic place. Yeah, also I like to post things I do along the way of my Instagram and uh, also a Twitter. Not sure if that is in show notes, but that would be fantastic if it is. Uh, Um, Yes. Yes, it might be. Uh, I think think we're posting it on the – yes, we're posting it as we go. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. So thegreenraper.org is the hub of your internet empire, but they can also find you on Twitter and on Instagram. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Listen, I got a question for you. Here's, how, here's what I want you to do. I want you to finish this sentence. Uh, if writing, writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? It has taught me that all of those walks in the quiet cemetery, babbling to myself incessantly, paid off. Good. Nothing is wasted. Nothing. You even recycled your thinking. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> On an audience of one. <laughs> That's right. Well, what the heck? Why not? Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and, and best of luck. I know you're going to give a TED Talk. I'm sure you'll kill. I hope it goes great. <laughs> and uh, and I, ho- I hope you got another book in you somewhere. It's someplace. Because I think we're all narcissists. So there's always enough books in everybody, don't you oh. think? Oh, well, certainly in this guy here, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Elizabeth, thanks again. Oh, gosh, thank you. Well, oh, yeah, it's true, you know, uh, it's true. The work I do now, boys and girls, it started with me just walking around talking to myself, muttering because I didn't have anyone to listen to me but myself, and that was enough to get me going. Uh, All right, you know, I'm going to be back next week. Okay, I'm going to be back next week. If, you, if you're one of those who listens live, uh, I'm going to be on at 1 p.m. instead of 1 p.m. Pacific. That's 4 p.m. Eastern instead of 2 and 5 with one of my favorite people, Andre Debuse III. Andre Debuse. I, I've interviewed him a bunch of times for author, but I've never had him on author to author. So finally, I get him on the show. Hallelujah. Uh, I want to thank my fabulous producer, R.J. Jeffries. Thank you, R.J., all of you, go out, find something you love to do, and just do it. <laughs> <laughs>